You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Eva Yazari, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. Hey, this is Doc G. Welcome back to Earn and Invest. There was a time when investing was considered the domain of money and concerns of social good and politics often inhabited very different spaces in our mind. Sure, ESG, environmental, societal, and governance investments have been around for decades, but the choices available and the general performance was always poor. They hadn't really gained much traction until recently. Enter 2021. The proliferation of ESG funds which have outperformed the market run by large and respectable brokerage firms has expanded greatly. The pandemic, associated recession, and social turmoil are upon us, and a new generation of millennial and Gen Z investors are coming of age who value not just the returns your money can make, but the good your money can do. In this broad-ranging interview, Eva Yazari and I discuss her new book, The Good Your Money Can Do, Becoming a Conscious Investor. We talk about what types of asset allocations have the most impact, ESG investing, and how to be intentional not only with your money, but also with your actions. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. I was burned out, and at some point I realized that I would do whatever it took to make enough money to leave medicine and then start living the life I wanted to lead. So I spent a bunch of years saving as much as I could, investing and side hustling, all to get to this financial goal, this net worth number that would free me from medicine. But the funny thing is when I got there, I actually found myself kind of lost. What were my meaning and purpose? I had spent so much time trying to get to this goal that I didn't think about what would happen afterwards. It was only after months that I realized that money is not a goal unto itself, and it could be used as a lever so that I could live my deeper meaning and purpose. For me, that was podcasting and writing and public speaking. But as I go further, I sometimes think maybe I got it wrong. What if money is not only meant to be a lever or a tool to finding more meaning, but could be impactful unto itself and even align with that meaning, and yet still create profit? What would investing look like then? 
Evie Yazari is a seasoned investor, entrepreneur, and CEO with 16 years of experience working in the venture capital and asset management industries. She's the co-founder and CEO of Beyond Capital and the co-host of the Beyond Capital podcast. Eva launched her weekly magazine, The Conscious Investor, in 2019. Her forthcoming book is titled The Good Your Money Can Do. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You know, the big question that comes to mind is you started your career in finance. And I usually don't think of finance and social impact together in the same sentence. So how did one lead to the other with you? Yeah, absolutely. I unpack this. My book actually did publish. So it is out there in the world called The Good Your Money Can Do. And I unpack this as well in the book. But to give the kind of background story, I worked on Wall Street, acquired some incredible skills, felt really great about them, loved financial modeling, loved the process of allocating funding and due diligence, really understanding where I was investing. However, you know, kind of going back to my background, my my actually upbringing, I have a, an upbringing where part of my family lived in Africa, another part of my family did a lot of deep social justice work, and I I almost couldn't deny it. But you mentioned that you don't think that finance and social good can go hand in hand. The reality is they absolutely can if you're using the skills and the tools of capitalism in order to generate social and environmental return. It begs an important question. Do you think there is a moral imperative to do good with your money? Absolutely. And that's, I think that moral imperative has particularly been heightened during the time of COVID. So we've seen increase in inequality, disparities in in income levels. I think one of the biggest um, shockers for me as a woman was seeing the majority of uh, individuals that dropped out of the workforce in the U.S. were women. And there was a vast majority. And therefore, I think it just really showed, you know, I'll speak for myself, it showed me as an investor whose investment portfolio did really well in 2020. But then, you know, on Main Street, you're kind of looking and seeing that people are losing their jobs and they're unhealthy or they're, you know, disproportionately being impacted by COVID. And so I think just in general, there is the moral imperative was it is strong and is heightened. And that is you know, because of a couple of things. I mean, one, if if you care about a specific issue, you know, I think you probably realize that now's the time more than ever to get involved in that issue. Climate really stands out to me again, gender equality, but even like health systems. And then the second is really thinking about the concept of enlightened self-interest, the concept of servant leadership, and understanding that what you what good you do in the world is often good for you. And that's a it's a case that I make in the book, and I use an example of an entrepreneur called Dan Price, who runs Gravity Payments, very famously dropped his salary, raised every salary in the company to $70,000, which he viewed and studied to be the, the true living wage. And what he says is that everybody around him is taken care of, and that's what that's the impact that he wanted to have. And that really does benefit him, not only as a leader, but as a person in the community that he's working in. So yes, the answer is resoundingly yes, but I think there are a number of different ways to look at it, depending on you know where an individual is coming from. You mentioned this term enlightened investment. And I think it's really interesting because a priori, we should see that as the default, But somewhere in the business world or in the investing world, we've kind of wandered away from that. Why do you think 
impact is something people don't think about when they're thinking about their investments? There's definitely an entrenched way of thinking that impact means that you're trading off return. And that is just not the case. There is a tremendous body of evidence, particularly in very accessible public market ESG and sustainability funds that are mutual funds or ETFs accessible to anybody that show that investing in these funds generates, of course, return in line with the financial markets. And in times, particularly during the downdrafts of kind of the early periods of our of the COVID lockdowns, actually outperform. But I think taking kind of the step back and understanding what's behind that, I think it's important to look at, you know, how capitalism was built. It was built by a particular archetype of a human being. And it wasn't necessarily inclusive of everybody who is a consumer or, you know, who is a stakeholder, really, you know, somebody in the community or even the environment. And therefore, there was a very singular view of what investing could be. It was make money and make more money. It was just, you know, invest your money and get a financial profit. But this, it is a new paradigm and, you know, ESG has been around for a number of decades, but I think it is a new paradigm to not have that trade-off mindset as an investor. And I, I honestly think that every investor needs to have that aha moment on their own. I sat in the room when my husband had that aha moment and it was really fascinating to see. But now, you know, we know that we're not trading off return, or at least we don't have to. There are, of course, areas where you could be more concessionary, but we know that you know we have our values and we're willing to align our values as much as we are for the potential for, for, for financial return. So I think everybody should examine what return actually means to them before diving into any investment, even one for purely financial gain. You mentioned ESG investing. If I'm correct, that is what environmental, social, governmental, this idea that it takes those areas into context when it decides what to invest in. We see lots of ESG mutual funds nowadays that's become more and more popular recently. Yes. The G stands for governance. And so that would be kind of like diversity on the boards or how the company is governed. And so, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. Environmental, social, and governance. Typically, it is a screening that is overlaid on a particular portfolio, but ESG sits underneath the umbrella of what's called impact investing, which I also call conscious investing in my book to kind of make it a a broader topic of all our resources. And impact investing, to define that for the listeners, is is, is the intention to utilize your, your capital to generate more than just a financial return. It's the intention to have a social or environmental return with your capital. Yeah, I see you, you've used the term profit married with purpose, which Absolutely. I think sums up impact investing very well. Uh, I really connected to that, that idea in your book. You've talked about reimagining capitalism. How do you think it needs to change in the way we currently function right now? I envision a world and I've been largely inspired by Rebecca Henderson, who wrote a book called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. But, you know, inspired by her, I envision a world where capitalism can work for everyone, where it is not a zero-sum game, where when I make money, it doesn't mean that somebody else is losing. It actually means that somebody else is winning. And I, I have enough, you know, evidence in my own venture fund portfolio through Beyond Capital, through my own personal portfolio, and through 
the network of impact investors that I have been lucky to exist in over the past 12 years, that this is very possible. And it's really just about mindset. And so there are some kind of points around, you know, shifting your mindset to have wealth consciousness of abundance to really, you know, take stock. Where are you spending your money? Why are you spending your money there? And how does that relate to your purpose, to your meaning and purpose? And if it's not aligned with your meaning and purpose, I actually think it can kind of cause disease with an individual, you know, numbers, numerous studies have shown that happiness is correlated to feeling connected to your work, your investments, to your, your life. And so um, going back to kind of the question about reimagining capitalism, it's really just, you know, making sure that all stakeholders are considered. And as an investor, when I invest in a company, I always make sure that all stakeholders are being considered and that we are investing in what we would call a conscious leader, somebody that is kind of understanding the customers, the shareholders, the community, the environment, the government as playing a role in their business. And to be honest, that's kind of the secret sauce to impact investing right there. I want to get back to this idea of how we can be more intentional in how we invest some of those factors you just mentioned. But before we do, I see a part of the population saying, why even bother with impactful investing? I can just use philanthropy, right? So I can invest to make money and then I can be philanthropic to support the causes I'm interested in. Is there a problem in thinking that way? It's not problematic, but philanthropy hasn't been enough. And I mean, if you look at gender, it it hasn't, philanthropy can't do anything about a pay gap, can't do anything about women on boards. It can't do anything about people of color, you know, having more greater representation in the business community. And so I think that those are areas where they're really using the tools of capital. There's great potential to scale and there's great potential for inclusion and not exclusion. The other point around exclusion when it comes to philanthropy is the philanthropist is deciding where they are investing their capital. You know, market forces are not deciding. So I actually don't have any problem with Mark Zuckerberg, but to use him as an example, you know, he decides where he invests, where he, where he gives away his money. He decided to invest in the New York public school system and it massively failed. There's a book written about it. I think that philanthropy has limitations, not only in the amount of funding, what the funding can do, but also the way in which it is decided that that capital support different causes. And there are a number of family foundations out there that just give to their friends and what their friends ask them to give to, which won't add up to a reimagined world of capitalism. You know, let's talk about some of the vehicles of impact investing, because when I'm hearing you talk about philanthropy, I hear the same criticisms for ways of being impactful in in your investing. Let's talk, for instance, about ESG funds. You know, I had Chris Mamula on to talk about ESG funds. He had done a bunch of research on at least ESG mutual funds. And in a lot of ways, he kind of said, well, you know, it depends on how you even define ESG, right? One man's ESG might not be another's per se. How do we know even that when we're using these vehicles that it's actually supporting what we want it to, especially with these multinational companies, the ESG mutual funds, for instance, a lot of their holdings are very similar to an S&P 500 index. So you have the Amazons and the Googles, et cetera. And 
because these companies are so huge, it's hard to parse out when they're being not environmentally conscious or not, you know, gender or class conscious because they're such huge organizations. Yeah. So the key to impact investing is asking questions. It's diving deeper and doing your own homework. And I say that maybe for somebody who doesn't have an advisor. If you have an advisor that is in educated and impact, they'll be able to do that homework for you and steer you in the right direction. But if you're investing through your Schwab account or you know whatever other brokerage account, it, it's really important to ask questions and see what a lot what lines up for you. It's very easy to find every single company listed in you know publicly traded ETFs and you know assess whether those companies do do really line up for you. But there are other strategies to go beyond the superficiality of ESG. I mean, ESG is a great stepping stone. It's a great toe dip, and I but I don't think it's the panacea. Now, I I think that each individual can evaluate whether being more direct about their impact investing could work for them. We also live in a world where the B Corporation certification is growing and those companies will become publicly traded. Vital Farms is one of those companies that went public in 2020. It's the you know organic egg company based in Austin, Texas. I think B corporations and keeping an eye on them from a you know potential to be a liquid asset perspective is would be great. And I'm sure once more go public, there'll be funds and ETFs centered around those companies. And what a B corporation essentially is is a business that fully is committed to walking the talk and certifying that it walks the talk in specific areas. And everybody can go onto the B corporation website and see how businesses are scored. And some of them are maybe more scored towards the environment, others perhaps towards workforce development, or excuse me, workforce diversity. That's a really great filter and seeking out those filters can be helpful for investors, particularly as the space progresses. The last point is I coined the term conscious investing, others have as well. But for me, what that really means is using all your resources for good. It's not just about your money. And the reason for that is where we are right now, somebody with a 401k may may only have access to ESG funds, but they can ask for more with their consumer choices. They can ask for more as an active citizen. And one of my favorite books is called The Environmental Impact You Don't Know You Have by Tatiana Schlossberg. And what she says is, we as consumers are shamed for the decisions that we make drinking from a single use plastic bottle or, you know, wearing denim or cotton, when in reality, we should be asking more from the companies that are providing us with these products and services. And so I think that that's where there's power in having a holistic view of what good and what impact means to you and just asking a ton of questions wrapped around that. As you talk about ESGs and B corporations, and I know in your book, you also talk about SDGs, and you're also talking about consumer choices, it gets a little confusing. Like, where does your average Joe like me go, who is naive about all this stuff, who really doesn't know much? Like, how do you begin to do this research you're talking about? Well, I wrote my book because I knew that the average Joe did not have a playbook. And I didn't write my book for my industry. And I'm very clear about that. If you're already an impact investor, you probably know everything in this book. You might want to hand it to somebody that doesn't really understand impact investing. So that's that's a great a great starting point. I, I also launched my online magazine for the same reason. It's called The Conscious Investor. 
There is a B Corporation blog called B Change, which might be a good resource for the, the listeners as well. And I think I would just, when searching around for resources around kind of what questions to ask, ask anybody who's doing that to define their values first, understand what they actually do care about, what they want to be intentional about with their money and their consumer choices and, and their you know, other areas of kind of how they spend their resources. And then there are some, you know, kind of niche areas, but ask them to be very authentic about, you know, what resonates with them. So, you know, that will often cut out greenwashing or pinkwashing or bluewashing or what's known as impact washing. These are all um, strategies that companies do employ, whether it's honestly, you know, malicious intent or not. Often it's just, you know, kind of spreading a social message through marketing rather than actually inculcating it into a business. I don't love to pick on businesses, but I do use the example of Nike in my book. I think they did an excellent job of aligning with BLM early, early on. But at the same time, they don't have a sustainability strategy that is, you know, rolled out, which is certainly would have been possible for a company like them at this time. And, you know, yes, last week in the news, we had some concerns around forced labor in a, in a province of China as well, which has you know, arisen now. This is probably decades after I'm sure you remember there were some concerns around forced labor in their supply chain. So I think it's just important to kind of dig a little deeper with publicly available information, but also know that if you are investing in large companies, there are likely tensions and that is just where the space is right now. It reminds me that there are probably ventures to be weary of, and it is popular and fashionable to talk about social impact. And that doesn't mean that all these businesses are carrying through with it. You mentioned the term impact washing, and I've seen you write about mission trap. Can you talk about what those are and how to avoid them? Yeah. Well, you know, as I mentioned, impact washing is a strategy that is utilized. Again, I'm not sure that it's really about kind of a, an intention to dupe the consumer or the investor. I think it's really more about companies truly not aligning with how to implement kind of social good, environmental good within their businesses. And they probably haven't done their own, their own work. Mission Trap is similar in that, you know, you could actually get involved in a business. And this is probably more on the direct investing side where the founder is, you know, speaking a big game around impact or is telling a beautiful story, but there's actually not a business behind it. And I think that that is as equally as dangerous as impact washing, because what, what I think is really powerful about impact is the market potential. It is the potential, as you rightly pointed out, to change capitalism, but do it in a way, again, where, you know, we're, we're still making money while doing good. And if, if we are kind of falling into the mission trap, we're often funding businesses that are not living up to that potential and therefore not creating a track record on which others can feel comfortable getting involved in the space. Are there some good examples of mission trap that we've seen in recent history where basically a big company has collected lots and lots of money and there was no there there, so to speak? Well, I mean, there are certainly some really massive examples of that in the venture world, but I think that's a different conversation. We work in Theranos definitely stand out to me in how money is kind of 
the intentionality of money is more of a, this is a zero sum game. And if I'm the one holding the bag, then that's not good. So I'm just going to keep funding this company. But I do, I would point out, I actually think the one-to-one model, meaning which is pioneered by Tom Shoes, somewhat falls into this category. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great idea. Somebody buys a pair of shoes, you give a pair of shoes, or somebody buys a pair of glasses or socks, and you give a pair of glasses or socks. But again, you know, going back to our conversation about philanthropy, it's not really getting at the root cause of what is needed in the areas where those products are being gifted. And as an investor who actually doubled her money while investing in an eye care business in a very rural part of India, where there was no access to glasses or even corrective lenses on glasses and also cataract surgeries, I know that it is possible when you go into a market where there is lacking access and create a business for that business to thrive. So I think that this is one example where I would just highlight, and again, not trying to pick on any companies, I think they've done a great job of highlighting social good and how version 1.0 can go hand in hand with with business. But you know, these are areas where I, I wouldn't have bet all my capital. I think there are now where we are now in the market, a lot more interesting opportunities to invest, earn return, and then have impact. I have to ask, based on what you just said, uh, what do you think, what's hot right now? Or as you're looking, what do you think are the fields that are going to be big for impact investing? Yeah, well, I think the public markets and just the broad portfolio public markets will continue to proliferate to the point where they are less superficial, number one. And that that will be a little bit of kind of supply demand of, you know, different industries rising up companies that ultimately end up being public, publicly traded vehicles or publicly traded businesses. Secondly, there there are definitely some industries that are are leading clean tech. You know, anything related to the climate emergency has a tremendous amount of momentum and innovation behind it. And I think that, you know, we went through the kind of solar investing cycle probably now over a decade ago, and there were some failures. And so there have also been some lessons learned in that industry. And investors are very aware of those models being unit economic positive upfront. So really, you know, adding up to profitability. And then, I mean, I would also say that I think the potential that I previously brought up in emerging markets is very strong, meaning there are a a number of sectors, but mostly need to haves that are not available to billions of consumers on our planet, health, healthcare, energy access, financial inclusion. And this is where I focused with my venture fund, because I do see a great opportunity for a return. And the impact is so baked into those business models that there is no conversation really about trade-off. Yeah. It really shows how this idea of both impact and profit can marry together when you look at some of these underserved areas around the world and how providing things like basic health care could both make an investor quite a bit of money, but also change the area and bring much needed services. Absolutely. And I think Kiva has actually proven this out, even though it is a evergreen model where you don't really get your returns back, you just continue to give your returns. It is a, it's a microfinance organization that has facilitated very, very small loans for the past decade and a half. 
And it, but it did really prove that there was a market there. They started out in developing markets with, you know, five, 10, $20 loans to small business owners and prove that it's very easy to get paid back and make money. But then again, you were just giving it again as a donation. Let's take a short break. Evie Azari's new book, The Good Your Money Can Do, discusses how to become an impactful investor and how to invest with intention. We'll be right back. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? It was one of my favorite budgeting apps, but here's the problem. Mint is disappearing. Now we all are stuck with the question, How will we manage our budget and finances now? Well, I discovered Monarch Money, and I have to tell you, I found it simple, enjoyable, and made for users like me. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. There's so many great things about Monarch. One is it's intuitive. When I signed up, I went to the website, and within minutes, I had had all my accounts downloaded. I connected to all my banks. It is collaborative. It's not only made for people like me, but for people like me to then share it with my spouse or my financial advisor or what have you. and. Monarch is so customer-focused that they're always looking for ways to improve and make their product serve us better. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Wish you were in early on some of the best-performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020? Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Right now, you can become part of our crowd's investment and launchpad, revolutionary AI-powered autonomous manufacturing that incorporates 3D printing to efficiently combine multiple materials into complex products. Launchpad is backed by Idealab, the startup incubator co-founded by famed VC Bill Gross that has launched over 150 companies ranging from hardware and robotics to clean tech. You can get in early on Launchpad and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com EAI. If you're interested in investing, you need to join rcrowd. The rcrowd account is free. Just go to ourcrowd.com slash E-A-I. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Eva Yazari, who is a seasoned investor, entrepreneur, and CEO with 16 years of experience working in the venture capital and asset management industries. She's a co-founder and CEO of Beyond Capital, a pioneering impact investing fund dedicated to the belief that investing can inspire good and sustainably improve access to basic goods and services. She also co-hosts the Beyond Capital podcast. So I want to pivot to get a little more granular here for us as individuals. You lay out a framework in your book on how to become a conscious investor. It's kind of a seven-step framework, starting with define your values. Tell us a little bit about the process we can undergo to become conscious investors. 
Firstly, again, you you rightly pointed out, the first step is really defining your values and knowing what you're passionate about. The second step is recognizing the importance of living your life according to your values. And what I would, I would call that wealth consciousness and setting your idea of wealth consciousness to one of abundance where you really aren't coming from a mentality of, I need to be the winner. This is a zero sum game where you're understanding that when you win, everybody else that wins, put very simply, I like to say, you can have your cake, you can eat it too, and everybody else can have a piece. And so the the book kind of sets up some some thinking around what that actually means and and helps to, you know, guide the reader in the direction of abundance and it's it's been a guiding principle of I think my entire life but also my investing life. And that's why I left Wall Street and got involved here because I really believe that it was possible. And then the the playbook continues on to inspire readers to know what they own. I think the first step after defining your values is just look at what you already own and review your options for your investments to see if they actually line up with your goals and with your what, what you're passionate about. And chapter seven is, is quite a dense chapter where I walk readers through different parts of impact investing, impact washing. We already talked about a lot about these qualities. If you have an advisor, what are some questions to ask? How to do your own due diligence, or at least kind of a, a, a framework for doing that. And then the last two chapters are about community because nobody can be a conscious investor without a community. It's virtually impossible. You need a community around you that either supports your wealth consciousness mindset or, you know, is investing alongside of you and has, you know, similar values. And then lastly, again, you know, kind of in the thinking around being a conscious investor, using all your resources, thinking about how you can add on a consumer lens or how you're, you know, you're spending your money, thinking about how you can add on an active citizenry lens as well. And I like to say that impact investing is for new investors, experienced investors, conscious consumers who want to go beyond that. So you can kind of flip it and you don't have to start with your investing and also active citizens who want to take their work a step farther. I love this idea that it's a framework that really expands way past investing. I also want to get back to this idea of community. But before we do, you mentioned financial advisors. A lot of people come to this conclusion they already have financial advisors. Is this something financial advisors are open to or even helpful to understanding? Like, Does your typical financial advisor understand impact investing? I would say the answer to that in the US is probably no. But the good news is, is that independent wealth advisors in the US will lead the movement towards impact investing. It is true that as much as they are trying, the large institutions are not fully walking the talk. I mentioned the climate banking report in my book. They are all on that list and they are all the largest funders of of coal and fossil fuels on the planet. And so I think independent wealth advisors are definitely a better better start. A lot of them are also getting educated really fast. They're joining networks where they can learn about impact. But I would just ask that, you know, investors take a look at who their advisors are. I selected to have young females as my advisors, knowing that they were interested in impact, even though I actually have an account at a large institution, they have really fought for me. And I've, ha- I've, I've had some progress, I think, because of that demographic. And so I, things are changing. But in general, 
there may be a frustrating conversation if you have just a traditional investment advisor who hasn't presented this as an option to you, and it may take a couple of tries. And I, I think patience is key. You mentioned having a female advisor. Do you think the infusion and the increase in number of female advisors has made the awareness of socially conscious investing more obvious? Do you think that it's a bigger issue now because there are more women in the field? Perhaps. I think the answer to that is actually the great wealth migration. One of my peer authors, Richard Steele, who wrote Elevated Economics, talks a lot about this and how he actually, his book is geared towards companies. And he says, companies can't ignore the fact that their consumers are now and will continue to be millennials and Gen Z. And we have, I'm kind of half millennial, half Gen X in my age group, but we have specific values that we want integrated into our money, our, our purchases, and you know the messaging that is kind of the marketing and the messaging that we see and, that, and what we respond to. And so I think that that's actually driving more. It's probably more of a demand side piece, but I, I, I you know, I do think that I do think that women are kind of more open to thinking about all stakeholders. But really what that comes down to is just research around how diverse views, whether it's females, whether it's people of color, bring different viewpoints to the table. And when you think about different viewpoints and different stakeholders, you kind of can't help but come to impact investing, especially since there are many options to get involved these days. We've talked about your framework for becoming a socially conscious investor. Should we measure the impact of our socially conscious behavior? And if so, how would we do that? This is a tricky question in the industry simply because companies are not measuring their social return on investment. It would actually be very easy for them to do that. It's a simple mathematical equation, similar to how I know that every dollar I invest impacts 20 lives. And they would basically just kind of take their profits and divide it by the impact that they had. But they're not doing that on a standardized basis. So we don't also even have benchmarks to compare impact results when we think about very large businesses. And that's why it is all anecdotal and it causes kind of these conflicts in you know, marketing and other areas where there can be impact and, and greenwashing. As an individual, I think the most important piece is to align with your impact and feel that you truly are walking the talk if if that's you know where you're where you're going with this but there are also frameworks that are out there I, I list a number of them in the book one of them is called the impact management project others are kind of just taxonomies for how you can express your impact some of them have really neat kind of grids that you can take an investment and just write it out and you know see how your impact is is being expressed so there are definitely publicly available ways for an individual to measure their impact. And there are some great tools, one of them called Open Invest, that allows you to see what's already in your portfolio and see kind of where you might have areas of misalignment in your portfolio as well. But I think the most important piece is to think about all decisions because it's very easy for us to invest our money and then you know, do things like have a house full of single-use plastic. And to me, it's really important. I would actually rather, you know, invest my money in a way that perhaps has less deep impact because I need a liquid portfolio, but know that, you know, all area, other areas are actively aligned with my values. 
You know, we started by talking about socially impactful investing, but as we talk further, it sounds like this is more one of the tools in your tool belt that goes along with a greater awareness and social consciousness of just about everything we do, right? From the way we eat to the way we consume, to the way we invest and the way we live. It is one of many things to consider if you're truly interested in in making these kind of changes. Yes. And that's why I think I'm so interested in conscious leadership. I'm working on bringing that more into our due diligence, how to bring in the commitments of conscious leadership, which there are 15 of them. And there's, there's also a separate book about that into how we evaluate, evaluate leaders, because I think that the impact really starts inside a human being. And if we take a overly intellectualized or academic approach, which, you know, I can totally line up with given my background (laughs) we miss the conversation. And also we don't allow for individuals that might not resonate with that level of conversation that might not read a longitudinal study. We don't allow for them to have access. Earlier, you mentioned becoming part of a community. Tell me about the communities that have formed around socially conscious investing. I would imagine for someone new to this concept, that'd be very helpful for them to kind of learn about how to undertake this lifestyle. There are a number of groups where investors have come together and done deals together or, you know, including learning about, for example, the newest ETF that supports women leaders. So it's not just private market work. It's not just angel investing. And um, the one that I feature in the book is called Tonic um, that's centered around that. But we are also seeing a proliferation of groups that are centered around different types of members, not just investors. So there's a group called Kindred centered around executives and companies. And it's fascinating. I think given our conversation so far on this podcast, I think there's actually more impact that can be made if you convince a number of entrepreneurs or intra-activists within large businesses to, you know, take on areas of sustainability and help one of these large companies kind of be more holistic about um, the impact that they want to have. So Kindred is another one of them. There are a number of female investing groups. Invest for Better is one of them around the country that has chapters e- even in the South. And I'm, I'm, you know, speaking to you from Dallas, Texas, and I, I know that the conversation is is slightly kind of at a slower pace than it is on the coasts, although there is a lot of wealth here. But I think the challenge is, is that, you know, in some pockets of the US and of course, other parts of the world, groups like women and groups that don't have large budgets are really told that investing is not for them. And I think it's important to find a group that believes that investing is for you and your demographic and really speaks to that. So invest for better is one that speaks that kind of language for women as well. And so there, those are a few examples, but I think what's most important is finding a high vibe tribe. It could be a group of friends. It could be a group of neighbors. It could be something that you start on your own with three people. I don't think it needs to be something formal and you, you don't need to make this a full-time job. You could say, I have $25,000 and over the next five years, I want to align that with my values and knowing that your intentionality is in the right place for you and you're making progress is the most important part. Do you see the bigger brokerage houses in the US and around the world taking these things into, or do you see them considering these things as they're advising their clients? Yeah. 
you know, for example, UBS, at least in Europe, stated that they will provide sustainability as a default to their private clients, which I think from a psychological perspective, I think is a really great idea if we really do want to change the system. But then again, they I think that they still have a lot of work to do around what they're taking your money that is sleeping in the bank account and what they're doing with that money, where they're financing outside. And then, you know, there are a number of smaller institutions that are doing a great job. Bank of the West even has like fantastic advertising. If you're on the West coast of the US, maybe you're watching Hulu or something like that, you'll see they're financing clean energy with your capital. And that's something we didn't talk about doc, but I think like just knowing where your money's sleeping at night is so important. Understanding even if you don't, you don't have money to invest, you probably still have a small savings account and that is actually being an impact investor. We like to say, unless you're putting your money under your mattress, you are a conscious investor today. So they are, they are paying attention, but I think that there's a lot of work to do. And we as investors need to ask for more. That is the most important thing we can do. And I'll tell you, I, I recently asked my large bulge bracket bank to tell me how many women are running the funds in my portfolio, how many people of color are running the funds in my portfolio. And I have a few additional questions to kind of go above and beyond that, just to understand, you know, what I actually own. You know, it's one thing to ask those as someone who heads up a venture capital fund. Do you think that the banks and the investment houses are listening to the average Janes and Joes when it comes to these type of questions? They may not be now, but retail investing is one of the largest categories of investing out there. And so eventually they will, especially as this great wealth migration occurs where millennials inherit or build greater amounts of wealth. It will start, I think, with larger clients asking for more. And so, you know, if you know somebody in a family office or, you know, if if you have your own larger portfolio, I think that you can really be catalytic with your capital and, you know, ask, ask for more from your institutions, but it will to, you know, to kind of probably not the use the best term, but it will trickle down in, in offerings as smaller clients on mass start demanding, you know, more of this. And I think the movement of pension funds to invest in ESG and to want their money to do more will also be extremely powerful. And we've seen that shift in my career. I've seen it move into hedge funds. And so pension funds move into the alternative asset class, then move into venture. And that's why we have a lot of money in Silicon Valley at the moment. And now they're moving slowly into ESG. And I think that that will also really change the way institutions are educated and how they understand the offerings they can provide to their retail clients. So tell us a little bit about your venture capital. Where is it today? What types of businesses are you working on? So I'm an emerging markets investor. I invest in India and East Africa. My family lived in Africa in the 50s and 60s. So I actually have examined my own biases, which is something I ask my readers to do. And I realized that I actually didn't have the same biases that other investors did going into a continent like Africa as an investor. To me, it was 
a place of opportunity because that's where my family lived. And my grandfather started a hospital for over a decade. And so I I was able to kind of come forth with different thoughts, whereas your regular traditional investor would probably be, would probably say, this is very risky. It's a very large, poor population, and they don't have anything, any money to spend on anything. But my investment thesis was really built on a study um, that was released 12 years ago called The Next 4 Billion about how consumers that live at low income levels spend their money. It's a small budget, but they do spend it on need to have. So that's what I'm centered on is four countries, five sectors, all centered around access to healthcare, energy, financial inclusion, waste and sanitation, and agriculture tools. That's and and I think we see fascinating businesses. You know, we just closed an investment in Red Wing Labs in India, which is a drone healthcare delivery business that will not only help with the COVID vaccine rollout, but other vaccines that are needed, as well as blood for postpartum hemorrhage and women's health and long tail drugs. That's one example. Another is in women's health e-commerce platform in Rwanda and Kenya that is growing and scaling very rapidly and provides women with the you know health products that they need, but also kind of aspirational ones like soaps and lotions. So Eva, I wanted to thank you for being on the show. What talking to you has really driven home is this idea that socially impactful or socially conscious investing is really a piece of the puzzle when it comes to how we think about living our lives in general. This idea that we can be impactful and thoughtful and intentional about just about everything we do from how we consume and how we bank how we treat each other, as well as how we invest. I think this is brought on for a few reasons. One is that with all the social upheaval we've faced over the last few years, as well as the pandemic and climate change, we've been thinking about how to improve our world. And then, as you mentioned, the wealth migration with the millennials and Gen Zers really requiring more out of their lives and their investing when it comes to social impact. I want to thank you for being on the show and end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where we can find you if we want to learn more. Absolutely. Well, I am very focused on, in addition to my venture fund, getting the message out there that anyone can be an impact investor. And you can follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. You can find me on LinkedIn and I'm happy for anyone to give me feedback. And if if readers or excuse me, listeners are interested in my book, they can look it up at thegoodyourmoneycando.com. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Eva Yazari. That's a wrap. Thanks, Doc G. Great to be with you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eva. Her book, The Good Your Money Can Do, is incredibly impactful. And in fact, I had a conversation with Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money, from the Stacking Benjamins podcast on Fireside about ESG funds and the role they should play in our investment portfolio. This is a live conversation in front of an audience in which we go back and forth and you get to hear some of my specific opinions. Do I agree with Eva? Don't I? Does Joe Salcihai agree with me? We have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Take a listen. You won't regret it.
And we actually have a friend of ours who's going to join us to talk about that. And it's the man behind the Earn and Invest podcast, Mr. Doc G. How are you, man? Hey, man, it's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about some of these environmental and social funds. Well, and it's also great to have you on Fireside. It's about time you got here. Yeah, this is a really cool platform. So I'm looking forward to being a participate and doing more of this. Hey, before Doc and I uh, dive into uh, this topic about investing your money in projects that you love, and is that actually, does it does it pay or is it just for love? I want to give everybody a little bit of on the format. Doc and I are going to talk for about 10 minutes. We'll set this up and then we'd love for you to join the chat. So uh, get your comments ready, have your questions ready, whatever, whatever you've got for us. We're going to talk, first of all, about this concept of ESG investing. What is it? How does it work? We're going to talk also about whether it pays or not. Um, and times are changing when it comes to that. So there's a little spoiler. And we'll talk about the history of it a little bit. And then we'll also go into like, what, what are your projects that you're interested in and, and supporting them with your wallet? So I, I love supporting projects with my energy, with my time. Uh, we have a local thing here in Texarkana, Texas, where I live. Gorgeous Texarkana, Texas, uh, which is a, a trail network building these safe routes for kids to go to school and walking for families and this uh, healthy stuff for our community. But I, I support that as much with my time, but we're going to talk specifically about your wallet today. So have that ready in about uh, 10 minutes. We're going to go to go to all of you and we'd love to have a great chat about it. But doc, to start with you, man. So you've done a few shows recently, which is why I wanted to have you on today. Uh, what have you learned recently about investing in things that you're passionate about investing with your values? All right, so I'm going to make a big, huge proclamation here. It's a little controversial. I think you can have your cake, but you can't eat it too. Oh, So I think if environmental, social, and governmental issues are important to you, by all means, invest in them, look at ESG funds, make your money do good, but realize that ultimately, in my opinion, you may not get better returns. So it's like, you can have one or the other. I don't think we're going to be lucky enough to get both. I love this because you and I disagree, man. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. But but so historically, I would have been with you. Back when uh, I was a financial planner for 16 years, I've been in financial media for 10 since then, but it's been a while. So it's been a while. But during the 10 years that I've done financial media, I've seen a big change in the numbers. So when I left financial planning, whenever a client would sit across from me, they go, hey, listen, I want to invest uh, based on my values. I don't want to invest in this. I want to invest in this. I want to make sure that that this makes an impact on our world. I don't want this. I was like you. I would poo-poo them out of it. I go, well, guess what, guys? Here's the numbers. And here is the numbers if you just invest in index funds. And there was a huge difference. But we look at like times over the last few years, Doc, there have been many, many ESG funds that have beaten the S&P 500. Well, I, I think there are a few ways to look at this. First and foremost, we're still looking at short term, right? So we're not looking at 10, 15, 20 years, which for long term and index investors, usually we're looking at a longer horizon. But I think the argument still holds that holds with a lot of managed mutual funds. The problem is there are a few very human decision points which are going to affect returns. One is 
someone has to decide what qualifies as ESG and what doesn't. And believe it or not, it's not necessarily as specific as you think. So people have different criteria. And often there's a big decision because you have these huge companies like Amazon and Comcast, et cetera, where they might be very ESG friendly on the environmental or societal side, but maybe not on the governmental side. So there's a lot of decision making that's very personal and very manager dependent on what goes into these, for instance, ESG indexes. And then, of course, they can decide, even if a company is very good from an ESG standpoint, to include them or not. So I think we get into the same problem we tend to get into with stock picking and mutual funds is there's a lot of individual decision making, which we know long term, it's very hard to beat the more calculated S&P and total market indexes. So is it possible? Let's not argue that today. But I will say that the majority of the funds where they have a manager trying to beat the indexes, they generally don't. And what do we also note about people who generally pick managers who beat the indexes? Everyone climbs in two to three years in when they've had these spectacular returns. And what almost always happens over the next five years is those those index, those funds don't do as well. So I think it's something to keep in mind. ESG funds tend to be really big on technology and growth. And if you're in a very technology and growth period in our history, you may have superior returns, but things like energy and utilities may become more popular later on and may change the whole outlook over the next five years. Uh, looking at, uh, at two different pieces, I'm looking at two different pieces right now that show two different sides of this. One is from last year talking about how uh, uh, S&P, and this is from S&P market, global market intelligence, that uh, during, during COVID times, you saw ESG funds do incredibly well. And by the way, we, we should define uh, the, the, uh, uh, ESG. It's uh, environmentally, socially responsible, and, uh, and governance, right? Correct. And, and remember, we don't have real clear definitions. So different people define ESG differently. And again, often with these bigger companies, it's a toggle between the three. So deciding if a company really should be in your ESG index fund or not, you, ha- you know, they may be really good on one or two of these points, but not on the third. I think I think you can make uh, a case for this, uh, even even based on what you're talking about, Doc. But 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 I like the hurdle that you cross if you're trying to pick a manager who's trying to pick uh, ESG funds, whatever type of of things you're in, investing in, and asking them to beat the market. That's not the case, or 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 may not be the case. But there are individual ESG companies. If if you're willing to do the homework, it seems to me that you could. You could instead create your own ESG-based portfolio of individual positions that you like, uh, but but the, the ESG part of it, the, the the socially responsible part of it, the piece, whatever it is you're interested in, whatever your values are, that's just the top of the funnel, not the bottom. You know what I mean? Like that, like say, okay, I'm interested as an example personally in water, so I'm not going to go invest in a bunch of water companies. I'm going to use that as the top of the funnel to see which water companies are more competitive and invest in those. And again, I agree. See, I think you can hit one of the two for sure. So if you decide that the ESG ideology and philosophy are important for you, you can definitely go in and make sure that you are in 
agreement and it aligns with your principles. But as we generally see, you're still basically trying to say, okay, how am I going to beat the market? What is the bag or basket of stocks that's going to do that? And it's still a rare individual who can do that consistently over 10, 15 years. Well, and maybe that's not your goal, right? I mean, maybe your goal is to hit a fairly low rate of return. So we always talk about begin with the end in mind. And if that rate of return is 6 7 or 8%, who cares if, if you're beating the market as long as your investments are reaching your goal? And, and I think that's wonderful. And I think as long as, again, it's, again, cake, you can have one of them, but not both. I, I think that's great. I, I think if it's hitting your goals, but what is being pushed out there today is this idea that you can actually beat the markets with ESG investing. And that I think is a dangerous and probably spurious conclusion. Uh, uh, I will still take the other side of that. Here's why I think it's different. I think times are different now because I feel like the public is demanding it from corporations more than they were 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And, and so I feel like you're picking companies that are going to be winners more often because of the fact that they're paying attention to what customers want. Yeah. I I mean, it's possible. I interviewed Chris Mamula from Can I Retire Yet recently, and he did a deep dive into a lot of these ESG index funds, at least. And so if you're going to go the index fund route, also realize that a number of these ESG indexes have the top five holdings are very similar to the S&P 500 and total market indexes. So, Well, and the other thing about it too is ESG, once again, in the eye of the beholder, right? Is this totally. based on your value? So if I want to invest in water, as an example, and I invest in a broad ESG fund, I'm getting a lot of other people's values in my fund. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it totally is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask about due diligence. And by the way, we are now uh, uh, 10 minutes into this chat. So let's include you, man. If you've got stuff, if you're hanging out with us uh, and want to chat with us, I see we've got uh, Mark here with us. Mark, if you've got something on this topic, love to have you join us on stage and share your thoughts about investing for a better world versus just indexing or investing FOMO money. Um, but, But while we're hanging out. Let's talk about uh, my one of my favorite topics in this in this area. Doc is this idea of um, this idea of how we pick which which um, which companies are, are responsible, right? Uh, what are responsible things to do with our money? What are what are responsible charities to give money to? How do you, what are your screens for seeing that a company is responsible? So first and foremost, you know, I, I think the first thing you need to do, and I got this from Eva Yazari, who wrote a book called The Good Your Money Can Do. The first thing you have to do is really look at your own values, right? So, so it start, starts with- Start internally, what, uh, not externally. Yeah, what are my values? And then the next thing to do is to go and look at what you hold. Like so many of us don't really understand what we hold and what their viewpoints are on these issues. So I think those are the first two steps. The truth of the matter is, in my mind, I've always separated the good I can do in the world from how I invested. And I've been rethinking that over the years. Um, I've always chosen to decide much more on a personal and local level. So where do I buy my clothes? Where do I buy my food? What restaurants do I frequent? That's really been the focus up to this point for me. In a way, though, that's investing, right? Because you're investing your dollars in the community. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's a lot harder. And, and I'll go back to my conversation with Chris Manuel on this. It actually takes a pretty deep dive to figure out what a company stands for. Because again, you may agree with some things they do societally. You may agree with some things they do environmentally. On the other hand, you may look at Amazon and say, boy, you know, I don't like the fact that their employees are not in unions and that might bother you. So you have to look at all of these different parameters and decide what's important to you. And I think it's difficult. I mean, I think you really have to go back to the prospectus of the company. I think you have to go to their webpage. I think you have to talk to people about them. I think you have to pay attention to the news. If you really want to get into the nitty and gritty, especially from these big companies, right? So a small company is one thing, but a lot of these big companies are multifaceted and they're not just one organization doing one thing. Often there are multiple organizations within the larger and Some of the things they do, you might agree with. Some, you might not. The other thing to really watch for is as green investing is getting more accepted and people are looking for it, there's something called greenwashing. So you have these companies that make it look like they're very (laughs) ESG oriented, make them look like they're very green, but they're not at all. They're using it pretty much for marketing. Yeah. Yeah. As as if that'll work long-term. That's a good long-term strategy. (laughs) <laughs> you'd be surprised that's that's worked a ton for companies in the past i remember you know on the on the on the whole crypto front uh companies that would would, would change their name to be crypto oriented so that the stock would go up like these people like hey i don't care what we make if, if it makes money we're we're doing like i've heard a pivot before but that's ridiculous yeah and, and meanwhile talking about crypto crypto is probably the least esg of all right because Crypto keeping requires your computer a humming. huge amount of energy. Yeah. Keeping your computer humming all night, mining that stuff. Yeah. It's the miners. That's the problem. <laughs> you don't put on your mining hat at night, go down to the <laughs> computer farm there at, uh, at Earn and Invest headquarters and start uh, cranking out the crypto. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, no. Earn and Invest <laughs> is pretty much a crypto free zone. We've done an episode or two about it, but generally uh, that is not part of my portfolio personally. You know, and, and something I found that is I've, I've, uh, so, so to, to, to pull back the curtain a little bit, just on my personal portfolio uh, is that I generally just do broad based index investing. I had, I had a decent sized uh, play fun account. And then I decided forget that last year because I didn't have time to really uh, pay attention to it because I felt like if I'm investing in individual things, I need to pay attention to it. So I got rid of it and now I'm rebuilding it. So I turned all that over to uh, indexes last year, and now I'm I'm back in individual stock land. But I'm literally putting in you know a couple hundred dollars here, uh, uh, fifty bucks here, like slowly building it again. And it's really fun to rebuild a portfolio. Number one, it's also fun to start fresh. That's a whole different topic that we could do a whole chat about about well, you know wiping the slate clean and remembering that. To, that yesterday does not equal tomorrow. Uh, uh, but as I look at these companies now with a, with a more granular look, I, I'm realizing that some of my, some of my, some of the compass. So, so my first screen is, is water as an example. And then I dive into these water companies and I look at how they go up and most of them go up at about the same rate. Right. And then there's a couple that lag behind. And I, in truth, am very much a value investor. A doc, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the cheap stock, right? Uh, 
Uh, so I will definitely take that risk over some high flyer risk. So, but most times when a stock doesn't go up the way the rest of them go up, there's something behind it. And by the way, it's okay to invest in one of those, one of those positions. You just got to know what the problem is. Whenever, when I was a financial planner, if somebody came to me and they said, Hey, there is nothing wrong with the stock. My response always was, well, you're not, you're not looking hard enough. You got, you got to keep looking for it. But, I, and I usually found that much like the average person out there whose stock isn't rising, it's because of debt. These companies, some of these companies get themselves really into trouble with debt. And, uh, and it's amazing how much these companies often, often will mimic uh, what's going on in our own backyard. Yeah, and I think it gets to market efficiency, right? So we do have a highly efficient stock market, especially, I think, in the short term. So when you're looking at some of these and they're not rising, a lot of times there's a reason. And then you have to go in and try to figure out what you think that reason is, what that means to its long term value and whether you think it'll grow over time. I'm, uh, I actually look at that differently. I actually think in the very short run, like in a few day period, you can find that the market is inefficient. But much like Jack Schwager, who studies these uh, great investors, we had him on the show back in November. And he said the, he believes the market is grossly inefficient over the short term. However, most of us, and you'll love this doc, most of us should pretend like it's efficient <laughs> because, <laughs> but, because we're going to get the hell beat out of us because we don't know what we're doing. It, you know, We turn this short-term stuff into, into trying to be a long-term play, and that's never the case. And the question, too, is always, what is short term? So we say, well, it's inefficient over the short term, but what does that mean? Days, right. hours, weeks, right. months? Yes. Yeah. And that's where I get lost. When, yeah. And when you're saying short term, we might say in a two, three month period, and I'm saying today, this week, you know, this hour, try to catch uh, people uh, with things inefficient. Hey, uh, uh, Doc and I, if you just joined us, we are talking about, do you invest more money for a better world or do you just... Do you just invest uh, differently and maybe do your um, th- your your value-based investing with your time and in your local community? I'd love to hear what's important to you, number one. Also love to hear exactly uh, how you how you judge. What does ESG mean to you? So feel free to, to join us just if you're in the fireside. If you're not in the fireside community, you can uh, join us from the link that you're listening on. If you are in the auditorium with us, just hit the button and uh, we'll, we'd love to have you on stage to talk more. What, what, specifically, what, what topics are you most worried about? Like, what do you do? You have any ESG investments in your portfolio? So no, I am a completely simply broad-based indexed. I thought you were going to say I'm tobacco and uh, <laughs> all old white guy governance. Um, that's what I like. Yeah. So you know, it is hard though, right? Because it begs the question: What if we found that your best returns were found in these companies that were not ESG friendly? And you know, it's the further question of how much should these issues play a role in how we invest? And I don't have an easy answer for that question. I mean, the role of our investments is to make money, to give us time and energy to do those things that hopefully in some ways are better for our world, right? If you can make enough money that you can spend less time at work and you can go volunteer at the soup kitchen, if you can spend your time working on important issues that you think will have a big impact on the world. How do we measure that versus saying, 
okay, I'm going to go and spend my time with the stock market, making sure that I'm completely ESG. Again, I think that at some point you are at risk of giving up returns. I know that you don't necessarily agree with that, but it's it's a question of how much we toggle the importance of that issue and how much it makes a difference. And and, and when you talk about returns, there's a different type of return too, right? Which is um, uh, my my alignment, my values with my money, like that's a return. I remember we interviewed, and I'm not going to remember her name and I, I'm so sorry, but she's a researcher from Harvard Business School. And she was talking about how we, we will value, we will value money, but we won't value our time quality, right? We'll go ahead and, and wait for later. We, we will waste time, but we will definitely, we'll definitely value money much, much differently than that. And I, and I always think about that. And I think about how if I can if I can line up my values with my portfolio, regardless of whether I'm beating the S&P 500 or beating this hypothetical portfolio that might or might not have won, if I can line everything up, like how, how, how great is that? And what type of life quality does that give me if, if the companies I'm investing in align with what I want for myself? And I think that's a great, <clears throat> I think that's a great point. I mean, Socially conscious investing, I think, is important. And I would argue that maybe we should be willing to sometimes give up some returns in order to have our investments fit more with our intentions as human beings. And I think that's completely reasonable. And I really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, I think that's important stuff. I think you have a depth. So I think people now understand this idea of, oh, I can be socially thoughtful when I invest, but pretty much their understanding stops at ESG investing. And even that to them is a little bit of a black box. So it was nice to create a much broader framework. And that's, uh, I thought you did a great job of it in your book. And uh, that's why it was Thank kind you. of fun to have the conversation. Yeah, no, I could tell you were really engaged, which really matters. Um, and it wasn't just stock questions. Um, so I'm grateful that you were interested. And if there's anything else I can provide you to help get the message out there, I will, of course, share it on all my channels. Um, but please let me know. Um, I'm really focused. Now I finally have a book in my hand. I'm really, really focused on getting this message out there. Congrats. I know, you know, um, marketing your book is no easy thing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I was like, I came out of the gate being like, I want to sell 25,000 copies. And my publisher was like, Hmm, have fun, have fun trying to do that. But I still have it as a, as a goal. Who's your publisher? So I actually self-published, but I used a company called Scribe to get the book yep. out there. Yep. So they did the whole package. Um, oh yeah. You know them cause they've reached out to you. Yeah. My understanding is it depends on how hard you want to work, right? So if you want to get on tons of podcasts, mm -hmm. if you want to do events, if you want to like push it, that's the way to get there. Um, yeah, I'm doing a lot and we have a really great network. I have like a 6,000 person list on my own. So, um, and then really engaged women in impact group and we're getting it out there, but I, I think the, the, the strategies are just to have people share it yep. and that's what I'm very focused on. Do you on. do public speaking? I do. 
Yeah, I do. Yeah. I've been, and I've been doing it for a while. Um, so, so that's a, a good way is to, to, you know, yeah. negotiate a certain number of books <laughs> I have in each I, talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. That's what I'm doing for like groups that like, you know, hard to know the value necessarily. Um, but you're right. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Well, good luck. And if I can help Thanks. you in any way, let me know. Um, I'm also more than happy to give away a few if you want on our Facebook group. It's completely up to you, but Ooh, I think I'm happy to do it if you want when the, when the episode drops. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.